Hi, and welcome to Communicating Climate Change, a podcast dedicated to helping you do exactly that. I'm Dickon, and I'll be your host as we dig deep into the best practices and the worst offences, always looking for ways to help you and me improve our abilities to engage, empower, and ultimately activate audiences on climate-related issues. This episode features a conversation with communication designer, researcher, and semiotician, Dr. Laura Santamaria. It was recorded in January, 2024. Laura's work focuses on developing insights and methodologies for influencing paradigm change towards social and environmental justice. And her passion lies in empowering organizations and professionals with the necessary tools to achieve such change. With over two decades of experience in brand strategy, design innovation, and cultural research, she's honed her skills across a wide array of sectors, including finance, consumer goods, fashion, charities, and startups. Laura is currently research lead at the Royal College of Arts School of Communication, while continuing her work as an independent consultant within the private sector. Amongst other things, Laura and I discussed how humans, whether as individuals or in communities, construct meaning, how these meanings can become appropriated or changed over time, and why deep contextual knowledge is vital to understanding how climate messages might be received by given audiences. So, let's get on with it. This is Communicating Climate Change with Laura Santamaria. From your perspective, how can communication best contribute in humanity's response to the climate crisis? For me, communication is more than just spreading a message. It's about igniting change. I think of it as a bridge that connects awareness with the real-world actions. And the trick here is to take those scary statistics and turn them into something that hits home for everyone. When communication is done right and it's clear, engaging and inclusive, it doesn't just inform, it inspires and gets people moving. Could you give a short introduction to semiotics and how being sensitive to their power can help guide us as communicators, particularly in the climate space? Yes, not an easy task, but let's try and break down semiotics in a way that's, that's easy to grasp. So in essence, semiotics is a study of signs and symbols and how we give them meaning. Now, for the purposes of my work in communication, I'm not interested just in what things mean, but how can I use different elements as ingredients to actually try and convey certain meanings? Maybe we can just play a game. What do you think? I say a word and you tell me what comes to your mind. Bring it on. (laughs) Okay. So let's go. Sunshine. Happy. Snake. Danger. Black. Night. Dog? Friend. Great. So for me, for example, dog is pretty much about loyalty, yeah? That sense of companionship that we get from the dog. For different people, these words can mean different things. And they can also, for the same person, mean different things in different contexts. So what semioticians tries to do is place those meanings within certain contexts. I wonder if you ever thought about why we assumed that a baby dressed in pink is a girl and one wearing light blue is a boy. These are cultural conventions. They are symbols that we use 
to communicate things in different ways that are not just words, right? And we have all, through tradition, through social conventions, agreed that these are the meanings associated with other networks of meanings. Same happens with the traffic light system. Uh, ever wonder why green light, that means go, and why red light means stop. So while you can break the codes of the baby pink and the light blue, uh, perhaps we cannot break the codes of the traffic lights. And these are socially imposed, what we call institutionalized meanings. Uh, we learn those to function in society. So these conventions, which we call codes in semiotics, are concepts that we come to accept as part of our social functioning. Signs and symbols are like our cultural software. They function as shortcuts that help us navigate the world around us and relate to others and find individual and collective meaning. And our brain loves this because <laughs> it would be impossible for us to function uh, in society if we have to work out what things mean at every second. So that's why we are wired this way. We are wired to use symbols to access deeper networks of meaning that we have acquired. They're in the back of our brains and we retrieve them very quickly with the symbols. In terms of what semiotic offers is a set of tools that help us understand how people perceive and interact with different messages, words, images. I call them symbolic assets. When we start doing semiotic research in a context, you try to identify those codes and classify them so that you can use them as ingredients. As a semiotician, I, I imagine myself like a detective looking for the hidden messages behind the obvious things all around us, from pictures to words to gestures and why people do the things they do and where does it come from, what does it mean to them, and then other things that can trigger feelings, memories, moods, and then obviously behaviors and actions. The underlying foundation, where we want to get to really, is the embedded values that people have, because values drive behavior. Particularly in the context of marketing and communications, semiotics plays a, a really invaluable role in understanding people really at the deep level. What makes semiotics methodologies different from normal market research or um, uh, audience research is that we don't ask people questions. So we go and analyze the cultural context our ideal target audience is embedded into and pick up those clues from uh, representations. It could be film, it could be articles in newspapers, it could be campaigns, it could be even products and services, not just the branding and the messaging of, out there, but actually, you know, things that you have around your home and why you've chosen this kind of things. Ideally, you create a lifestyle map of your target audience. You recraft your message using those symbolic assets that we've extracted. I have tons of examples from marketing. Clotter Rappel, for example, worked with a Land Rover across different countries to launch one of their latest models. Then they did study and they understood they needed to change the shape of the headlights for a, an Asian context. The round headlights were seen as cute. So it didn't really convey that masculine image that they wanted. So the design had to change. Let's go back to the examples when we did the game. 
I said sunshine. In the UK, it can be a very welcome concept. <laughs> yes, it's sunny. <laughs> we can have a summer full of sunshine. Everybody will be happy. The same scenario, put it in the Amazon, where the fires are consuming the forest. Talking about sunshine can evoke a completely different response from people. If we talk about the destruction of the Amazon in the UK, how relevant is that? I can care about it. However, how does this fit in my everyday life? And this is where we have this idea of the value action gap. I'm planning to go on holiday this summer and I have to take a plane. That's going to have an impact. Do you sacrifice your holiday for what you believe? I think it exemplifies to a certain degree that we cannot be generic with our message. So the context is crucial. So what would make people tick? You know, what would make the message relevant to people? You can talk about the destruction of the Amazon to an audience in the UK. Of course you can. But there are other examples in, their, in people's daily lives that can have a much stronger pull. So is it strategic or not? That's what we're trying to do. How do words, or indeed symbols and images, contribute to shaping public perception and understanding of climate change? That's a good one. I think we all know the power of words, uh, symbols and images. And, you know, as communication professionals, these are, these are nuts and bolts, right? Their impact is rooted in the way we use them to frame concepts and connect with people's emotions, values and their, their identities. So I always say it's not about using fancy words or fashionable words or images, but actually using the right ones at the right time for the right people. We are described as cultural intermediaries because we shape public opinion in that sense. Not only communicators, but you know, filmmakers, advertising, anybody working with media, images and communication and popular culture is influencing public perception. We use words, symbols, and images to represent, and to represent is to make present, bring it to people's attention. The way that we choose to represent highly influences public opinion. We know that certain meanings get institutionalized or legitimized. If I say, okay, I'm a communication professional, I've been in the Communicating Climate Change podcast, I had an interview in Forbes, I did this. These are uh, legitimization mechanisms. When we construct messages around climate, we also do this. You try to ground it. It's the same with brands. You have to ground it in meanings that are valuable for people, that people will say, okay, this is credible, we pay attention to this. In linguistics, there is uh, these concepts of elevation and deterioration. We know that certain words change their meaning in time, in culture as well. So they are not fixed. Meanings are never fixed. They're always in flux. And that's why it's very important to conduct this kind of analysis, because it's not the same what it means to be a woman today than 20 years ago or when my mother was growing up or when my grandmother was growing up, right? 
What we do with semiotics is we track how meaning is doing, what values is triggering. We try to classify those meanings, what looks like a little bit dated, what's everywhere, like now, for example, this green of everything. It's pervasive. And then some emerging forms, which are, you know, new ways of representing that are pushing the boundaries a little bit. And then we have the cycle, like in fashion, you go back and reinterpret. But the meanings are are moving all the time in society. And some uh, words that were perhaps neutral then get charged with positive or negative connotations and, and vice versa. Fun in the English language or context, you know, originally had negative connotations, meaning to, to cheat or trick. And then the meaning now has a positive connotation. Another one, stench, which is a deterioration. Originally meant smell, odor or fragrance. So bad or good smell. And now we use it just to refer to bad smell. The one that I always come back to is one that you mentioned earlier, which is pink. I'm pretty sure I heard in our time with Melvin Bragg discussing old military uniforms that were pink because this was seen as like a macho color. And today, you know, yes, it it would be unthinkable, right? (laughs) How much meaning does sustainability really have? Mm, That's a good one. The meaning of sustainability has been diluted. There's so much confusion around what this term actually means. It's so vague, perhaps detached from, you know, people's lives. Eco and green have become more of relatable words and they're being used as shortcuts for sustainability. There's a lot of contagion between professionals, right? And there are fashions going on and, oh, use this word. Now everybody's using regenerative. No, we don't talk about sustainability anymore. (laughs) And now everything is regenerative. (laughs) Regenerative. (laughs) But what does that mean Uh, as well, you know? For whom? People pick up on things and they think that they work just because they're being used pervasively. You don't have control on those meanings. Can you identify any specific words or constructions or symbols and images from climate communication that have been particularly effective or ineffective and why? So there are two ways that we make meaning. There's meaning acquired through lived experience. You know, I touch something hot, I burn my finger. With climate, not everybody can experience the effect. Um, And then there is learned conventions that we were talking earlier. And these are meanings that are floating around. People pick them up to talk about things they haven't really experienced. This is a a dangerous territory, and this is where misinformation happens. This is where um, you can influence what people think, what they value, what they prioritize. Stuart Hall, my favorite theorist, said that at any cultural moment, there are three forces at the same time coexisting in society, and there's these residual meanings or residual forms of thinking and the dominant and the emergent. So the dominant will always try to engulf the emergent because it poses a threat of overthrowing. And this is how we have the green consumerism, for example. That's how it's come about. Let's have a market share of this before people have to choose between them and us. Before we go to business, we acquire. Appropriation happens for that reason, because the emergent always poses a threat of overthrowing the, the status quo. 
when the environmental movement came about, it was very radical, it was confrontational. But then a few years ago, there was a campaign from a denim brand that used this tree hugger that, you know, for the last 20 years, we were trying to get away from <laughs> by softening what environmentalism meant for people so that people could engage and don't feel that it's a radical practice. However, this brand chose beautiful models with painted bodies representing the tree huggers being arrested. It was um, incredible how they appropriated this meaning to uh, associate a brand of jeans with rebellious spirit. There's another campaign from Greenpeace that show the Amazon as two lungs and one is kind of eaten up as if it was lung cancer. I don't know to what extent this was effective or not, but this I always bring as an example of showing devastation, which can be taken perhaps very seriously in Germany. But in another context where people need inspiration for action, rather than crisis and devastation scenarios, it might not be that effective. It can have very different effects on different audiences. One aspect of it is to study the context and seeing what meanings are out there, but we're also producing meaning. We can produce meaning, and we have this enormous power to actually influence what people think, what people accept. We can really shape priorities. And it's not about the sense of urgency. There isn't a better motivator than inspiration for people to actually move to action. Urgency, great, but when you are inspired, you're unstoppable. What's the single most important aspect of communication that we should be paying attention to in our communication endeavours? For me, it's about empathy. The single most important aspect of communication, and especially in the context of uh, significant issues like climate change, is empathy. Now, here's another overused word, right? <laughs> so, but empathy in communication involves understanding and genuinely considering the perspectives, the emotions that are evoked and the experiences of your audience, connecting them to that really deep human level. It is through empathy that we connect. So if we don't have empathy ourselves as professionals, if we don't develop this uh, quality, we, you know, we can play with words around uh, that and, and we don't know what we're doing, really. So the only way that we can know our craft is understanding that deep. Um, and we can never be in the situation that the audience is, but you can really try your best to understand their place and to listen very carefully, like you would with a partner or you know, a family member or somebody you care about. So empathy is about care. Do you care about your audience? Do you care? So not only about getting the message out, but do you care about how they're going to respond to it? And when we put care, we pay a lot of attention. If you love your partner, you develop empathy for something that, you know, maybe a, a situation they're going through. Or you might also care for paying attention to 
what they like so that you can come up with a nice gift, trying to, to know them at their very deep level. And so this connection it is crucial. Uh, and when people feel understood and see their concerns and values reflected in what you're putting out there, they are more likely to be receptive and responsive, of course. What's the biggest mistake that you see communicators make when attempting to engage the public on climate change issues? This constant exposure to alarming and catastrophic predictions that we need to act now and then can lead to this incitization and anxiety. People might start tuning out of what you're saying because they feel too overwhelmed or this induces a sense of helplessness and fear rather than motivating action. While it's important to convey, you know, the seriousness of, of climate change, it's equally crucial to balance this with hopeful, empowering messages and inspiring ideas that enable people to take the steps that they can to make a difference. I had a great time talking to Laura for this episode. But what in particular stuck with you from our conversation? What will you take from it and apply to your own work? For me, understanding that the meanings that I ascribe to certain themes, ideas, words or images are not necessarily the same as other people's is a big one. Obviously, we talk a lot in climate communication about the need to make things meaningful for people, to bring it home for them. But I think this often ends up focusing on some common activities or values that people share, rather than something far deeper in terms of how they actually interpret reality and any messages we might be exposing them to. Sure, a given audience might gather around a value like teamwork, expressed through an activity like a soccer team, and that might give us something we can tap into for a climate campaign. But what if we miss a cultural code that could connect in a more fundamental way? Or, like the Land Rover example Laura gave, clumsily turn our audience off. We stand to learn a lot by downloading a bit of our audience's cultural software. Then there's the need to be sensitive to the changing meanings of words and symbols. Whereas a pair of hands with a plant growing out of them may have been compelling in the past, today, for many of us, it's a meaningless cliché. We need to be aware of these shifting sands and where our respective audiences are in that state of flux. All this harks back to previous discussions with the likes of Susie Moser, Florencia Luhani, and others, with a great emphasis on context and bringing the challenges, as well as the solutions, home for our audiences. Home not just geographically, but culturally, too. So that's what I'll be taking with me. But how about you? What did you hear? What will you be incorporating into your communications endeavours? Thanks to Laura Santamaria for sharing her time and insight with the show. It was great. You can find links to some relevant resources in the show notes. Thanks also to you for listening to Communicating Climate Change. If you enjoyed the episode, why not leave it a rating or a review? You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts, or by subscribing so you never miss out. You can find Communicating Climate Change on LinkedIn too. And if you think the series would be of interest to friends or colleagues, why not point them in the right direction? Remember, each and every episode attempts to add to our toolkits to help us develop the insight and the empathy that we'll need for this fascinating task. So be sure to stay tuned for more. For anything else, just head over to communicatingclimatechange.com. Until next time, take care. <laughs>